Hey everyone, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Today we have two chapters to look at, which is a lot of scripture. We're not going to be able to look at every little detail, but essentially these two chapters fit together. They are um, working together to give one message. And if you could summarize these two chapters into one sentence, um, I'll try my best to do it. It would essentially be this. Jesus is better than Moses, so don't reject the call to enter true rest in Jesus today. So, Jesus is better than Moses, so don't reject the call to enter true rest through Jesus today. The author begins in these first six verses of chapter 3 to draw a comparison between Moses and Jesus. Here's what he says. We'll read it again, just verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Jesus. The author here begins by going, at the, the greatest hero in the minds of the Jewish people, their greatest prophet, the one that they could go back to as the greatest comfort for them. This was the one who was miraculously born and he was saved on the Nile River and he was grown, you know, grown up in the Egyptian home. And then he, you know, another miraculous calling to save the children of Israel from slavery and all the miracles that were associated with that. Then, then Moses guides them out of Egypt, and he is in direct communication with God, and he's able to, you know, get the Ten Commandments. I mean, think of all the things that are associated with Moses. And here the author says, Jesus is better than Moses. Now, why is he saying that? The reason he's saying that is because the believers at that time, like we've been hearing over the last few weeks, they were struggling with pressure and, you know, persecution was coming their way. And a lot of them were tempted to go back to what they were familiar with. And what was going back to what they were familiar with was going back to Moses or going back to the synagogue or to the Jewish faith, to Judaism. And so they're saying, you know what? We know Jesus. We're starting to learn about him. We really like it. But maybe we should just stick with Moses. Maybe we should just stick with what we're comfortable with. The thing that we know. We know that Moses gave us the Ten Commandments, that he was the author of the first five books of the Bible, you know, the Torah. Let's go back to that. that maybe there'll be less stress and less persecution if that's the case. And for us as believers, the temptation is similar. Now, when we're under pressure, when we're facing discouragement, when we're facing a decision to follow Christ, our temptation probably isn't to go back to Moses. The temptations we face are different. Maybe the temptations we face are going back to people, to messages that people are saying. Maybe it's, you know, an author that we really love that is giving us some sort of advice or maybe just giving us insight into the way the world works. Or maybe it's a podcast that we listen to. Or it's, you know, many of us go to social media and we just get these little snippets of people's lives and we get to hear a little bit about them. And suddenly the, the promises that we enjoy as believers get superseded by these other people's voices. 
maybe it's not even people's voices. Maybe it's um, just, you could call them vices, different sins or struggles that we have. These are things that we can actually do that give us the feeling or they give us the comfort that we so desperately long for. So in moments of discouragement or in moments of boredom or in moments when we're questioning the promises and the realities of the Christian faith or the promises that come with Jesus, and we turn to watching YouTube or we turn to pornography or we turn to something that gives us immediate comfort in the moment. Rather than hanging on to the promises of Christ, we hang on to these vices, these things that become an idol for us. They become like trusted friends. Maybe the last one is the most subtle here. This one is just the habits of life. The daily habits that we do, they can actually become sources of comfort and sources of meaning for us that are more than they were ever meant to be. So it's a gift from God that we enjoy structure to life and that we have things to do. That's, that's a gift from God. It's a grace. But there are habits of life that we can just get into that can numb us to the reality of the promises that we enjoy in Jesus. And there are habits that even our neighbors um, find meaning in. Uh, James Smith, in his book, How Not to Be Secular, he writes this, Your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers. They don't have any sense that their secular lives have constructed, that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that word, almost. So your neighbors, my neighbors, the people maybe that you work with, they're just going through their life. They're finding meaning in the work that they're doing. They're finding meaning in the things that they do, the habits of life. I mean, most of what we do, we do out of habit, and they're finding meaning there. But ultimately, those things, those subtle daily habits can actually become the purpose, the meaning for our lives, and they were never meant to be. They can't sustain that. And something like a, a pandemic or a death or some sort of event that causes you to reflect on your life will, bear, will lay those bare, and we see it super clear. Andy Crouch in his book says this about idols, because really what we're talking about is idols. He says, idols do not give up their power without extracting a fee. Idols don't give up their power without extracting a fee. So when the idols begin to crumble around us, there's a fee, there is a cost to it. And so for the author here, he's, he's posing this question, Moses or Jesus if you turn to Moses, it will not end well for you. And so this takes us to his second warning. And, you know, preachers and authors are always looking for examples to point to. I mean, I'm always trying to find ways to communicate the truth, the reality of what the message is saying. And here it's right in the story. So the author is going to pull out for us the story of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 through 11, he quotes Psalm 95, which is, is pulling from the story of Israel's exodus from the land of slavery, the land of Egypt. In verse 7, it says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. 
Remember, this is the warning for them. This is the second warning in this book, and this is trying to get their attention. They would think back to the story of Israel leaving Egypt, coming to the end of the, the edge of the promised land, and then God telling Moses, saying, send in some spies so you can see what the land is like so we can, you know, we can go in there together and I'm going to give you a rest in that land. You're going to enter that promised land. It's going to be a rest for you to enter into that. And so what do they do? They send in the spies, and the spies come back and they say, the land is beautiful. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is amazing. There's, we're going to be able to live there. We're going to be able to flourish. But there's a problem. The problem is the people that are there, they're like giants. It is impossible. We are not going to be able to defeat them. It's going to be certain death. Now, there's a couple spies, obviously, that, you know, if you remember the story, they say, we can do this. God is on our side. We can enter into the land and take it. But everybody else says, we cannot do this. There is this moment of unbelief. Numbers 14, verse 3 says, this is what the children said. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? Wouldn't we be better off just to go back? You see how the author is, is using this story to get them to think about their desire to go back to what they're used to. Let's just go back to Moses. We know Moses. Let's go back to him. This Jesus thing, a little too scary. I don't know. There's too many problems with it. Let's go back. Children of Israel, this promised land, that's too hard to enter into. Let's go back to Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves. We had to work all the time. Life was difficult. But hey, we were there. We knew that we wouldn't die. They started believing their own lies. They started fantasizing and idolizing their lives as slaves. And so the author here in this warning is trying to get the believers to think about what the actual cost of this unbelief is. Now he's not trying to get them to think about, hey, this is how you lose your salvation, right? We can read some of these verses and people can read them and say, man, it sounds like these guys are believers, but now if they don't believe enough that they're going to be you know, they're going to lose their salvation. And the word of God is so clear that our salvation is not something that we earn and it's not something that we keep. Listen to these verses. John 6 verse 35 says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37 then says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Did you, did you catch that clarity there? I will never cast out. John chapter 10 verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. In Hebrews 8, where the Apostle Paul probably takes the greatest amount of time to explain the gospel, he summarizes the first eight chapters with these verses. Verse 31 of chapter 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then even in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, talking about assurance of the salvation that we enjoy, it says this in verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the word of God is clear that salvation never was something that you or I could earn. And it's not something that you or I can keep. It is sure. So what is the author doing here then? Is he just playing like mind games with us? Is he just trying to mess with us? Remember, these are, there are five of these in Hebrews. These are warnings. These are meant to be provocative. They are meant to be shocking. They are meant to grab your and my attention. Because the author is trying to get at the heart of the matter, the unbelief that is tempting these believers and the unbelief that tempts us on a regular basis. And so he uses strong language, strong imagery to show, hey, this is the result of unbelief. Partially, it's also because within the context of the local church, there are hearts that are still not fully convinced to the reality of the gospel. So in 1 John 2.19, it says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The Apostle John there is saying, man, there are people that were in our midst that when we sent them out, when they went out for various reasons, we discovered they weren't actually part of what we were doing here. They weren't actually believers. Jesus also talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about the day of judgment, and he says, And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Man, there are people that were doing the work of Jesus, but their hearts were not fully convinced of the reality of the truth of Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, The writer, speaking of Hebrews here, is all too aware that within every Christian community, even in the first generation, there were some who were in danger of going along with others for the sake of companionship, but whose hearts weren't really in it. So on one hand, the author here is speaking to the unbelieving hearts that are in their midst. And that's, that's okay. That is, that is the reality that every church has people within it whose hearts are not fully given to Christ. You may be sitting there listening. You may be an adult and these truths have not fully sunk in. You may be a teenager or a kid and you're listening to these and you're only here because you're part of a family and so you're, you know, kind of forced to sit there and listen to this. The reality of the gospel is not entered into your heart. And so the author is giving the warning to that person. But more than even to the person who is not a believer yet, these warnings are to us believers, okay? So the, the main focus is not people who are uh, not believers yet. If they hear the calling, amen, that is so, um, it's a wonderful truth. 
that they have put their faith and trust in Christ. But the real warning here is for us as believers to begin to slowly put our trust in other things. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. It says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there is still something that is unresolved here. There, For the people who are tempted to turn towards unbelief, to those who are tempted to go away from the promises of God, there is still a calling for you. The opportunity is there. You see, the author wants us to identify with the, the nation of Israel here in their rejection of God. Identify with them that the temptation is there, but don't follow their example. But he also wants us to identify with them and follow their example in that there's a rest that is promised. There is a rest that is promised for believers, for all of us to enter into. And, and what is that rest? Is he just, you know, like meaning that now as believers, our problems are going to go away, or even if there are problems, we can just face them easily. It's not going to be a problem. There's just kind of this chill vibe that we're going to experience to life, and everything is totally fine. Ah, pandemic, not a big deal. I'll just get through this. No. For, I mean, we know anybody who has been a believer for more than a week knows that life is hard. And our lives are just as difficult as our neighbors and the people that live around us. And in many cases around the world, and sometimes for us here, because of our calling as believers, standing up for truth and, and the reality of truth in Jesus, it can be even more difficult to be a Christian. So what is this rest that the author is talking about? Well, there's a lot of of different ways that we could talk about it, but let me just highlight three things for us. The first, and the first thing that he talks about is this Sabbath rest, where we actually identify with God in taking a day to rest before him. So during the week, when we enter into the work that we do with our hands, or maybe with our, our minds or our fingertips if we're on computers, in those moments, we are entering into a good thing. We are following the, the cultural mandate. God has called us to be co-laborers and co-creators, culture makers in the world around us. But God took a day, the last day of creation, to rest and to enjoy the goodness of his creation. And so when we enter into that Sabbath rest, we acknowledge that the work that we have done in the week past has been a part of our calling, and now we rest acknowledging in the goodness and the grace of God in all that he's done, the good and the bad. So this Sabbath rest is a calling for believers to enter into. But there's also a hopeful rest that we're called to. The hopeful rest is this reminder that each one of us, our days are numbered. We will not live on forever. We may get 60 years, we may get 80 years, maybe someone's going to live to 120 years. I don't know if you're going to be able to live that long, but you might get way past 100. But eventually our days will end, we will die, and we will be forgotten. That is the reality of life. People are no longer with us that we have loved and their names will be forgotten. But as believers, our names are kept. And there is a rest that is eternal that awaits us. And it is in the presence of Christ himself. And so this is a 
hopeful rest that believers hold on to. And it's something that we carry with us every day in the struggle of life. It is a hope that is really unshatterable. And the third one is a spiritual rest, a spiritual rest that we enjoy. And this, we can go back to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says this, Come to me, all all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is talking here about entering into the rest that comes only through him. You know, in our spiritual lives, we can feel the the pull towards doing, towards being something, uh, so that God will be pleased with us. And what Jesus is saying here, and, and the rest that we're called to enjoy as believers, is a rest that we enter into through him, through Jesus himself. And when we get closer to him, we discover that he's not demanding more out of us. He's inviting us into a rest. So, a Sabbath rest, a hopeful rest, a spiritual rest. How do we enter into that? You might be asking that question. I I hope you are. How do we actually enter into that rest that we're promised, as opposed to going back to unbelief? We enter into that rest together. We do that together. Now, though you may um, need to make a personal, personal decision of faith, the faith that you put in Christ is, is only you that can make it. I can't make you do it. You know, the church can't make you do it. Other forces can't make you do it. It is a personal decision that you make between you and God. But the, the life that we live as believers, the rest that we enter into as believers, is something that we do together. And we do it together with the Word of God as a central piece of that life. So Hebrews 3.13 says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that exhorting is to be done with the Word of God. So he says in in chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we are called as believers to exhort each other, to help each other, to work together for this entrance into a rest in Christ. And we're to have the Word of God be a tool in doing that because it has the ability to get right into our hearts. Now, I don't know what your experience has been like as a Christian, but many Christians have not experienced this type of relationship where together, and here he's talking about daily interaction and exhorting each other in the Christian faith. Most of us, man, we've been a part of churches, and we might have even been involved in small groups. Maybe there's been seasons of intense discipleship with other people, but the vast majority of our spiritual lives have been independent, on our own, successes and struggles. And the calling of the believer is actually, always has been, and still is to this day, to do this together. Paul Tripp, in his book on leadership, talked about a number, he talks about a number of different characteristics of leaders, and one that he talked about, which really hit me, and which fits with this uh, sermon, is the idea of dependency. He says this, 
Dependency means living as a leader or as a follower or as a member of a church. It means living as if I really do believe that my walk with God is a community project. It means living as if I really do believe that isolated, individualized, independent Christianity never produces good fruit. And this is really one of the the foundation pieces for missional families at Citizens. This is why we wanted our church to be built around missional families where believers are coming together, they're getting to build relationships, know one another, get to the point where we can exhort each other day by day and have the Word of God penetrate our hearts so that our temptation toward unbelief and false idols is replaced by the reality of Jesus in our lives. And so this is something that we're called to do together. And we want to slowly walk towards that together as a church. And and I know it's been difficult because of the pandemic and for various reasons, but man, we are not giving up this vision of doing the Christian life together and helping one another so that we can together um, acknowledge our weaknesses, our doubts, the false idols in our lives, the things that are like the temptation of Moses for these Jewish believers. We want to be able to acknowledge those together and walk together into freedom and rest in Christ. So our calling remains again this week. The calling that the author writes in chapter 4, verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. The rest that we all so desperately long for can be entered into today. That's the promise. And so we want to do that as a, as a body together on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who's better than Moses. He's better than any other promise that the world can give to us. In closing here, I just want to read a, a welcome, actually. This, is a, this was from a pastor who, welco- who was welcoming the church into the uh, service and trying to orientate their minds to, towards Christ and the gospel, but I thought it was fitting for us in closing this sermon. He says this, Welcome to church. Here's the one thing I invite you to understand. You may have noticed that when you walked into that, that the doors are painted red. That is an old Christian tradition because we enter into the church through the blood of Christ. Out in that world we live in the rest of the week, we never measure up. Our lives are never complete. We never fully belong. Then we come into the church through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And what makes the difference here, the reason why we belong, we're walking into completeness already prepared. Therefore, we can be weak. We can be honest with ourselves, with one another, and with the Lord. And he says, he says, we belong. So to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, This church opens wide her red doors. In the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners, welcome.